0: Global
1: Capital Podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital.
3: And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor.
2: Now, a lot of the talk in the capital markets this week has been about uh, Russia and its borrowers paying coupons on their bonds. But we've uncovered uh, a different story, um, one where three Russian companies face an existential threat thanks to the consequences of sanctions and a quirk in the documentation on their convertible bonds. Isn't that right, John? Yeah,
3: Convertible bonds being bonds that can convert into equity in the companies later later in the, in the life of the bond. Um, and we'll be hearing all about that from our equities team, Aidan Gregory and Victoria Teela, uh, later on.
2: Yeah, I, I like this story in particular because it's one of those sort of quirky things where what is essentially quite a small part of the capital markets and probably deals that uh, these companies issued you know, obviously to enhance their their financial and business uh, position um, now leaves them looking like they could be wiped out. Um, Yeah, and
3: it's, I suppose, a a sort of um, illustration of how Russia was once engaged with the very most sophisticated end of the international capital markets. Um, And now, uh, you know, the the contrast between that and the sort of, um, you know, almost stone age, um, financing arrangements that, that are going to be possible in, in the coming weeks and months is quite stark.
2: Yeah. And, and also just this situation itself, it's, uh hugely complex, um, and involves all sort will involve all sorts of, uh, financial specialists and, uh, yeah. people with a very particular expertise, but, um, they've, they've just sort of run into this slab of sanctions that, um, yeah. you know, just forbids them from doing all the things they would normally do. Yeah. Um, but first though, John, you've written a really interesting story this week about, uh, well, it will affect bond underwriting um, and and equity capital markets underwriting in future, um, and that's uh, that stemmed from an HSBC announcement this week. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what HSBC said it was going to do?
3: Yeah, um, well, it, this is partly driven by shareholder protests. The, um, the 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 big UK banks, Barclays and HSBC. Uh, have both been targeted by groups of shareholders in the last few years uh, with with resolutions that that, that get submitted to, to be voted on at their annual general meetings. And these are to do with the banks sort of trying to push the banks to reduce their financing of fossil fuels and generally become more um, sensitive to climate change and to the need to transition the economy uh, towards a greener future.
2: Well, banks have done this, though, haven't they? They've uh, they've done extensive, uh, or well, I don't know if it's extensive, but they certainly have been able to disclose how many emissions they are funding through their loans and investments, mm. um, up to a point. <laughs>
3: um, <laughs> I mean, the the, the 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 odd thing is, I mean, you might think that by now banks were disclosing what what their carbon footprints were. Essentially, mm. it's not a new idea. Um, You know, investors in, in, you know, equity funds and so on have been for for a long time, they've got this idea that, you know, uh, you can do climate sensitive investing or green investing and kind of reduce or try to target and reduce the carbon footprint of of a fund of investments. Now, um, but, but this is only really beginning to percolate into the banking sector. Banks are of course much larger, but that doesn't mean they couldn't, um, you know, get the same information on companies' emissions as equity investors do. Um, but but banks have not really got very far in 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 even disclosing what what they think the emissions of their financing portfolios are.
2: And this this particular um, matter is to do with the. Uh bond and equity deals that banks arrange isn't it because they but the banks offer nothing on that um, when they arrange a bond for an oil and gas company or uh, a mining company you know as far as the environmental impact that they disclose is concerned they might as well be um, you know doing a bond deal for a reforesting company or a fluffy bunny co or whoever it might be (laughs) well it's yeah i mean so so the first thing
3: banks have been trying to do or you know and pushed by ngos and and climate conscious investors is to you know begin to disclose about the emissions that they finance now and the first thing is to, is their actual loans and this is you know more directly analogous with with what investors do because investors provide money to companies um, and so do banks when they make loans to them. So you can translate the sort of methodology used by investors to banks. And um, there's an initiative called the Platform on Carbon Accounting Financials, which began with a group of Dutch banks uh, about five, or even more years ago, um, to sort of work out a methodology for for banks to do this. Um, and it's and it's gradually got bigger and bigger. And it's now got something like 230 banks involved, including many. You know, large global banks such as Bank of America, Citigroup, Barclays, and so on. Um, and um, you know, so they've got quite far in in developing a methodology for banks' loans. Um, but but the banks have still not um, really begun to say anything about the financing they arrange for companies through bonds and equity deals, where they're not putting the financing on their own balance sheets. They just sort of helping the companies uh, obtain the financing from from third-party investors
2: and so hsbc are presumably waiting for this standard to be disclosed before they start adhering to it i'm I'm guessing so in actual fact hsbc may have made a commitment but it's not really going to change anything it does um, and in fact it's that's going to apply across the street isn't it? None of the banks are going to change what they're actually doing uh with regard to bond and equity underwriting um well there are sort of three stages
3: i think the first is whether what they disclose whether they disclose anything and at the moment um you know up to now, hardly any banks disclose anything about the capital markets underwriting uh at, at, and the emissions sort of associated with that um And, you know, it's even, uh, you know, many of them might not even acknowledge that that they're really responsible for that. But but increasingly, they're going to have to, because most of the large banks have joined the Net Zero Banking Alliance, um, which is a sort of uh, umbrella group where they have committed to get their financed emissions down to zero by 2050. And um, you, you can't really be credibly involved in that with and, and pretend that this issue of um, capital markets arranging doesn't exist. So they're gonna have to get face up to the issue. Now, you know, so the first thing is disclosure and HSBC here has actually leapfrogged a lot of the others and they have made disclosures. So far, they only cover a certain small groups of clients, which are oil and gas companies and power and utilities companies. So that's two sort of client groups. And, um, but of course, those are ones which have very high emissions. Um, And so HSBC have gone as far as disclosing what they estimate to be the emissions associated with their capital markets work
2: for those companies. It's it's significant that HSBC has done this as well, isn't it, given their prominence in arranging finance for these sectors? Yeah,
3: it's um, the figures that most people use uh, when talking about banks and climate change are the Rainforest Action Network. Uh, well, they're actually an NGO that heads a, a, a sort of team of NGOs that produce these figures every year. And mm-hmm. the um, so they track the, the amount of financing that all the banks have provided, including both loans and capital markets financing for the fossil fuel industry since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2016. And the, the rather dismaying uh, news is that... Um, Generally, uh, this financing has actually increased, and the um, you know despite their sort of green noises, the the, the banking industry as a whole is ploughing hundreds of billions more into the fossil fuel industry um, now. And HSBC particularly is uh, quite high up in that ranking. Um, it depends how you cut and dice the figures, but. It's arguably the biggest uh, European bank in financing fossil fuels.
2: I see, and so what would but what would such a regime look like? I can sort of foresee this um, some sort of situation where you know a bank is the lead manager on on a bond or a number of bonds, and eventually has to turn a mandate down because it's um, it's underwritten so many. Um, kilograms of uh, of carbon dioxide or something like that. Is there any, any sort of um, discussion about how banks will measure and then regulate what they do? Yeah,
3: we're still in the phase where the banks are working out how to disclose this information, how to count it. Um, and under this platform for carbon accounting financials or PCAF, there's a, there's a working group which is working on a methodology for uh, bond and equity underwriting. Um, now it, you might think, well, it, it can't be that difficult, can it? And and I think I think that's a very fair point. You know, it's it, it's really not very difficult to uh, attribute these emissions, and the banks really just don't want to start publishing figures if they're not using the same methodology as other banks, because they don't want to look out of line or yeah. suddenly have to kind of change their methodology later. Um, But what's happened is, you know, this working group is expected to finish its work by the summer, and HSBC have gone ahead and and published some figures based on what what the state of discussion so far. And what they've said, using 2019 figures, is that the emissions from the oil and gas companies they did bonds for uh, in that year were 35.8 million tons of CO2. Now, that is... HSBC's share um, is not the total emissions of all those companies. It's worked out by basically allocating all the company's emissions across all of its capital, debt and equity, equally. So if you've provided 100 uh, million of financing, whether through shares or bonds, to, say, Exxon Mobil, then you get that share of its total emissions is, are attributable to you. That's the PCAF methodology. And the, to, to apply that to bond underwriting, um, what HSBC have done is basically say we have facilitated financing of a hundred million. If if a hundred million is their share of, of a bond they've underwritten, so um, it's not it's not very complicated maths, or it's not and it's not conceptually complicated either. Um, so that, and they have sort of owned up to this amount. Now. Um, what they haven't done yet is set any target to reduce it.
2: And I guess that is, um, that is the crux of, it, not it? And moreover, how will banks such as HSBC incentivize their DCM and ECM staff to do that? Um, you know, there needs to be some kind of, I guess, um, way of divorcing, uh, fee income from those deals from, um, People's comp and career progression and, and so on, and I, I wonder if there's uh, any discussion about how how banks will manage that. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, until they set a target,
3: we don't know how stringent any reduction is going to have to be. But what? Hmm. But the shareholders, uh, um, organised by an NGO called Share Action, um, which filed a motion for AG, uh, HSBC's AGM this year have been pushing them to to go faster and make more disclosures. And specifically, they pushed them to make this concession about setting targets for bond and equity underwriting. So HSBC have now promised that by the end of 2022, they will, assuming the PCAF methodology is available by then, they will set a target to reduce the financed emissions through capital markets underwriting for these particular types of company, oil and gas and power and utilities. So when we see that target, we'll know how ambitious it is. It's important to say that HSBC's philosophy about this is that they they want to help their clients transition themselves. So the ideal thing for HSBC would not be to have to cut out clients, but for the clients themselves to reduce their emissions so that the economy gets greener, um, emissions fall, and HSBC continues to finance them as they Make
2: the investments required to do that transition. And of course, advising on that work will be a, a, a tidy fee earner for, yeah, for banks yeah. involved in it, no doubt. Certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, I wonder, apart from just the shareholders and the banks concerned, if there aren't other bodies that can bring bring pressure. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular of other bond issuers. I, I could well imagine a situation where certain governments or supranational institutions or government agencies who um, are. You know, who align themselves very closely with uh, ESG concerns, whether they might demand that the banks that underwrite their bonds have a, you know, a certain don't go over a certain threshold, or um, are seem to be reducing the um, emissions they finance through their bond underwriting and so on.
3: Yeah, I mean, we have seen some signs of of issuers, the particularly sort of high-minded issuers like public sector bodies um setting uh ESG conditions for the lead managers they use, though only I think so far for sort of specifically ESG labeled bond issues. But but it's certainly true that the, the you know banks are very sensitive to their stakeholders, the public, the the media, politicians, um you know the 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 banks want to operate quietly in the background and sort of have a generally good vibes felt about them uh, and they don't what they don't like is controversy and sort of being having protests outside their offices um and they hate you know shareholder motions being brought against them that paint them as not good from a climate point of view so that's why um both Barclays and HSBC in in the last 3 years have you know been really engaged with the investors that have put brought these motions and talked to them and sort of
2: tried to satisfy them so when can we expect something to change um when do we expect these uh these new pcaf um conditions to emerge
3: yeah i mean it it, it, it it does all of course go rather slowly if you're from the point of view of a green somebody who's concerned about the environment i mean this is stuff that could have been done a decade ago to be perfectly mm. honest but Um, the PCAF methodology should be published in the summer and finalized by the fourth quarter. And then banks really won't have the excuse anymore that there is no methodology. There will be a public agreed methodology um, that the the great majority of them have signed up to. You know, making the disclosures and putting hard numbers down on paper suddenly makes things much more transparent And if you, as a bank, set a target to reduce it and you just say, oh, we're going to reduce it by one or two percent a year, you're just not going to look credible. You know, people know the, the rate at which the economy needs to decarbonize, and it's much faster than that. And, you know, once the numbers are out there, banks are going to have to start setting some serious targets.
2: Well speaking of transparency or perhaps a lack of it, um, we spoke to Aidan Gregory and Victoria Teeler this week about a certain amount of opacity in the convertible bond market. (music) Hi Aidan and Victoria, thanks for joining us. Um, Victoria, can you give us a very brief overview of uh, the peril facing these three particular Russian companies.
0: Yes, of course. So we have these three companies, VK, which used to be Mail.ru, um, Yandex, and Ozon, And they are all facing potential bankruptcy or they might end up in the hands of distressed investors because they might not be able to, to pay some investors what they owe them.
2: I see. And just quickly, what do these companies do? Who are they?
0: Um, there, uh, VK is an, an internet company, and Yandex does uh, a variety of tech things. It's e-commerce and some search engine elements, and Ozone is an e-commerce platform that's sometimes labeled the Amazon of Russia.
2: Great, okay, and so um, this particular story revolves around convertible bonds uh, that oh. these companies have issued. These are bonds. Uh, what that can convert uh, into shares in the company, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay, and um, can you explain to us uh, what the problem is with these convertible bonds? It's to do with uh, whether the shares in the company are trading or not, am I right?
0: Exactly, so these companies um, have had the problem that the trading in their shares has been suspended in London or New York where they're listed and this has triggered a delisting event they're not technically delisted yet but trading has stopped for long enough that this this was triggered and this means that now people who hold a convertible bond have the right to redeem it so they could just go to the company and say we would like our money back for this now
2: and how much money is that is that is that the problem that there's uh, that this is a rather rather big demand for cash potentially
0: Exactly. That's part of the problem. Um, Mm. So for Yandex, that's the biggest case, Um, the one that has made the news most, uh, we're talking about 1.25 billion US dollars. In case of Ozone, it's 750 million and VK would owe 400 million dollars. And um, part of the problem is that the companies don't have the liquidity right now. Both Yandex and PK have published how much they have, and it's less. Um, but the problem is also that even if they got the cash somehow, I don't know, whoever would lend them the money, they couldn't transfer it to the foreign investors from inside Russia. So, so that's that's an, because an of extra sanctions. Um, yeah, that's because because um, of Russian restrictions within Russia on transferring money out of the country.
3: And just to be clear, the, the, this right of investors to have the bonds redeemed suddenly um, is is part is 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 built into the bond contracts, isn't it? It's not a it's not some sort of legal rule.
0: No, exactly. That's a clause that's quite common for for convertible bonds, especially in emerging markets companies.
3: And what's the point of the clause?
0: Um, the, the point of the clause would be to protect investors in case the company actually is delisted because it takes away that whole option of um, converting your bond into equity if you wanted to.
3: So basically, the investors have bought the bonds on the basis that they, there's a chance that they will be converted into shares later. And if, the, if that becomes impossible because the shares are no longer listed on an exchange, then they get the right to have the money back straight away.
0: Exactly. It's a bit like you, you bought a project and now it's damaged, so you have the op- option to to get the right. money back.
3: Right. But of course, what this means is that when the, the company which thought it didn't have to repay the debt for several years suddenly has to repay it on the spot.
0: Exactly. If the investors redeem it, they could also just hold on to it if they wanted to.
2: Well, the investors yeah, could hold the, the convertible the bond bonds holers. in the hope that sanctions are exactly. lifted and... The trade share again okay well let's i mean let's let's talk about the sort of well let's talk about the ramifications before we talk about the remedies now um obviously if a, a company can't find the cash it needs to pay what it owes um that's usually default or possibly bankruptcy or um something disastrous like that what's what's being discussed as the consequences in these three cases
0: so yeah um the, the- Bondholders know that if they if they redeem their their right if they exercise that put option that they have that they just won't get the money because they can't pay it. So yeah, one option would be to would be litigation, but that is probably going to be uh, yeah quite a long, gruesome process um, and uh, quite messy as far as I've heard from people. There they have now entered negotiations between the companies with their bondholders to kind of try and find a different solution where they might amend conditions um, in in some way that makes it acceptable for the bondholders to keep those bonds and and not bankrupt the company.
2: So this is quite sort of... um People are all being quite cooperative at the moment then. No one's trying to enforce this decision on these Russian companies just yet.
0: Yeah, it looks like right now people are generally willing to talk. um, But what has to be said is that we're at this point not really talking about your, your regular convertibles fund anymore who just buys these bonds and hopes that they mature one day um, with a nice little extra option um, of the equity. They, those seem to have largely um, exited so far, especially in Yandex case. Um, and now the distressed debt funds are, are coming in who kind of have um, the, the capacity to deal with that. So there they're, there's a little panic because the, these people have experience with with situations that are a bit similar to this i would say
2: right right so um what are the possible outcomes for them um i think in the story you wrote about this you talked about these distressed funds uh basically ending up owning the companies um which I guess they won't want cuz they but they probably aren't experienced online retailers or search engine providers um, or probably not like and it's that.
0: also I mean we're still talking about Russian companies so it might not be something you necessarily really want to own right now but I spoke to somebody um at a distressed debt fund and he said that now those funds are coming in and kind of eyeing the the assets that those companies have outside Russia so they they're ready to seize those. Um, he said something along the lines of nobody wants to own a Russian company, but like if you get a a, a large part of the assets, well, lucky you.
2: Hmm. And I guess they won't have paid anything like what those assets are worth when they most bought the likely not. Okay. No. Right. So what are the likely outcomes at the moment?
0: um well it, it depends a little bit on the individual case of the company they all have hired or at least um some of them have already said that they have hired legal advisors and financial advisors um but yeah this this same distressed debt fund said that it's quite likely that about 30 to 40% of yandex will be owned in some way by yeah by by the investors and most likely the distressed debt ones
3: it's a bit strange isn't it because um you know, to think about, I mean, in a way they're thinking about it in terms of a normal sort of distress situation and commercial workout and so on. Um, but it's, it's kind of difficult to imagine now, you know, Western investors kind of taking possession of shares in some of these Russian companies, which after all are not insignificant companies, but very important in in the Russian economy. It's hard to imagine that actually being allowed, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. It's it's a very, very unique situation and they all admit that. And there's, of course, still um, it's still all very much work in progress. Um, so so now all the experts are, are looking at it um, and we can't really give a definite answer yet. But it will like everybody agrees that this will be a very, very interesting case to look at and kind of see where it goes and how this part of the market reacts to, to the sanctions that we have now.
1: It's very the convertible market um, is sort of slightly notorious for going through some of these fiascos. I mean, like both Wirecard and yeah, tell us a bit more. Both Wirecard and Steinhoff were, you know, were in the com in the convertible market. And I mean, in Steinhoff's case, it was one of the biggest issuers. Um, And that he just sorry, just for our listeners who don't know, can you just tell them who Steinhoff uh,
2: Steinhoff was?
1: Um, Steinhoff was was the. Steinoff is the South African uh, retail conglomerate that went on a global acquisition spree and then disclosed mm-hmm. serious accounting, accounting fraud. And what, what happened to it in the convertible market? I mean, the convertibles uh, tanked, obviously, and ended up in, in the hands of distressed in debt investors. But it caused a mm-hmm. huge amount of pain because they did so much financing that Steinoff had like a, a, a large weighting. In the in the global convertible bond market index, and it was also an investment grade company, so it was widely owned at the time.
2: I see. And so, how did that, that how did that situation end up? What was the what was the resolution there? Uh, do you think there are any is there any sort of um, precedent for what's happening with Yandex, Ozone, and VK? Uh,
1: no, it's a different. It's a very different situation. I think the uniqueness of what's going on with these Russian companies is that it's so much driven by geopolitics rather than, than anything else. I mean, Steinhoff ultimately went through a, a massive restructuring and they had to sell off lots of their, um, best assets, particularly the, the international assets.
2: I suppose Steinhoff was to do with an underlying problem with the actual business, right? Yeah.
1: Whereas there's no yeah.
2: suggestion thus far that the operations of, uh, these three Russian companies are in any particular trouble.
1: No, I mean, that's what makes it so so unusual and peculiar, such a peculiar event for the market. I mean, the market's mm. used to mm. dealing with these distressed situations, but this is just something completely above and beyond what's been experienced in the past. Do
3: you think that, um, mm. are there any sort of lessons that the market will draw from this episode,
1: do you think? Uh, don't buy Russia? Well,
3: I mean... Apart from that, I mean, to do with how convertibles are structured and the the legal terms and so on.
1: Yeah, I suspect you could always tighten up some of the language around the delisting causes.
0: Yeah, that's um, somebody... Sorry. Uh, a banker actually pointed out that first of all these these clauses are there for the specific cases so the fundamental language that should protect or, protect bondholders is there but now people might scrutinize that a bit more and kind of see if it like, which cases it might leave open so there there will probably be an increased alertness um one one banker also said the the whole market is just very event driven um, so there will probably be some effect, but it might not overturn the entire way we do bonds.
3: I think it's interesting because, you know, the, the whole idea of convertibles is to be a sort of hybrid between debt and equity, and you know, the the great virtue of them. Is that they behave like debt when things go badly for the company, and the investors still get repaid, just as if they were ordinary bondholders. But the investors get to participate in the equity upside if the company does well and and the share price goes up. They they make some of the profit that an equity investor would. But but it, but this is sort of this this kind of magic aspect of convertible bonds is is revealed with this situation as having a bit of a flaw, and 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 this is that an event which is not in itself a credit event, i.e. that the companies have not run out of money, but it's simply an, an almost technical thing that their shares have been delisted. In this case, really, for a, for a legal reason that's extraneous to them altogether, um, it has actually triggered a credit event. So it's the equity-like nature of the bond has sort of fed through into the company's debt structure and and caused a potentially a default.
0: Yeah, I was also wondering if there actually is any way that you could protect yourself from something like this happening. Um, because this this event is something that's just outside of the the kind of legal the assumptions that you made about what could happen when this agreement was made.
3: You mean are you thinking about the from the investors point of view or the issuers?
0: Um from the investor's point of view. <clears throat>
2: It's hard to know what they could do. You wouldn't want to take out that delisting clause for, for obvious reasons. Well, the investor um, wouldn't.
3: But, but, but it's, it's a weakness no. in the structure that it, that arguably uh, um, it, it's a potential, you know, it can cause a sort of accelerated default. And, um, you know, sometimes that might be justified if the, if if, for example, a company sort of abusively issued a convertible bond and got cheap funding because of the benefit of the equity option, but then you know, delisted itself for some business reason, the investors would be justifiably mm. fed up. But on the other hand, um, in a situation where it's not the company's fault, um, it, it's actually makes things worse for most people involved.
2: Well, this is it. I was going to say that um, you might then add on an extra bit of the clause to cover sanctions yeah. or yeah. maybe there's some sort of force measure yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of uh yeah. language you could add on but of course you know you can't you can't keep adding sub clauses to sub clauses every time there's a there's a situation i wonder i mean i wonder it's you know it is is it's a very inf- unfortunate um set of circumstances but is is it perhaps a sign this particular situation is it a sign that the market actually works quite well in the sense that with any, with any investment and with any business operation, there are risks of things outside of your control. And actually, we've found, um, or the investors have found other investors who are willing to take on this risk at a price. I suppose the uh, the real victims here are perhaps, you know, these Russian companies. But that was an intended consequence of the sanctions.
3: Yeah, I think the convertible market is one... Um where Im- investors are notably rational and hard headed, and I mean, it's a very complex product. Y- the investors that go into it are not they're not driven by sentiment but by you know mathematics and cold calculation generally speaking. Mm. and the it, it, um, you know despite being quite a small market, there is liquidity in it because you've got these different kinds of specialist investor that will hand the convertibles around between them depending on the particular risk appetite of the investor. And I think, it, I mean, we don't know, of course, how many uh, of the original investors have been able to get rid of these two, two distressed funds. But, um, but but certainly some, uh, you know, there there is some appetite from, from distressed investors. And that, you know, as you say, is an indication of a market working well.
2: Yeah, I just wonder what, the, what calculations uh distressed funds have made um I would love to know what they paid for the bonds and uh how that matches up against the assets that they believe they might be yeah. able to get hold of and what their yeah. chances are of yeah. getting hold of those assets it's uh it's quite a calculation to
1: have to do yeah the yandex bonds are trading in around 39 but at, at one point they did drop below 30
3: right okay. the over
1: the course of the last week yeah. yeah
2: it's not too bad is it considering no no,
1: maybe there were an awful lot of distressed mm. funds circling. I think the yield on the Yandex bonds was like in the thirties. Well, a percent. Yeah. Yeah, uh,
2: you can't get that on your high-interest savings account at the moment, can you?
1: As we said before, this is this is an incredibly bizarre event for the market. Um, for a market which has had it's more than its fair share of bizarre events in the past. And it's going to be a pretty intense sort of source of fascination over the coming weeks how this plays out, because so much of it ultimately depends on, on geopolitics, how long the sanctions are in place for what the outcome of Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine is.
3: And, of course, there could be peace. And all, you know, there could be a peace agreement. And, and then suddenly, you know, the, the normal rules of finance... Would perhaps look much more applicable, um, and in those cases, um, some you know some kind of you know legal and commercial workout w- would need to be done, wouldn't it?
2: from the financial consequences of the war in Ukraine to the uh, future of emissions financing disclosures you can follow every step of these complex stories at globalcapital.com thank you very much to John Aidan and Victoria for joining me uh, to record this podcast and to Gerald Hayes our producer for putting it all together Um, thank you of course for listening we'll be back with more from the capital markets next week goodbye